Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to the Office Theology Podcast. I'm excited to share some sermons that I've preached with you. In this sermon, I will be going over Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. I pray and hope that you were encouraged by it. I am excited to continue in our Genesis Foundation series. We're going to go through chapter 22, uh, which is Abraham and Isaac. But before we get there, I want to explore this thought with us today. The depth of your faith is directly connected to your level of obedience. The depth of your faith is directly connected to your level of obedience. So let's pray, and we'll get going. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your peace, God. We ask for your spirit to come and to speak clearly to our hearts. God, we know that you are faithful. We know that you are good. God, and I pray for any of us in here wrestling with our faith or wrestling with tests and trials going on in our lives. God, I pray that we find our hope. I pray that we find our peace in you, Jesus, knowing that when we look to you, God, um, you provide in all the ways that you see necessary, God. God, I thank you for who you are. We say this in your name. Amen. Um, have you ever found yourself in a situation where your fitness was unexpectedly tested? Maybe. And now, what I'm not talking about is like you trained for some like big race and I have a 5K coming up, so I have this testing or I have an Ironman or like any of those things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like when you're casually walking upstairs with a friend and you get to the top and you have to pretend like you're not winded. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you're walking up the stairs and you're like, yeah, that's a good idea. Shallow breaths. What you're trying to do is not actually show that you're winded just from going upstairs. Anybody else up in this place? Okay, good. Not just me. What happens in those moments, walking up hills or stairs or someone pretending like you're not winded, those moments are very revealing because sometimes you're like, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape. Other days I can't walk up a flight of stairs. But what this does is it reveals a state of what you are at when you're not preparing for what you find yourself in the middle of. And we find the exact same thing with Abraham, with Isaac. Because, nah, I'll pause on that because, because I don't want to steal my thunder from later. Let's go to the text and let's read. Chapter 22 says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am, he said. Take your son, your one, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I will tell you. Now just pause for a second. Let's give some context of where Abraham lives. He's a sojourner. He's a pilgrim. He in the land of Canaan. The priest of the Canaanite gods said their gods demand human sacrifice. The people of Canaan found nothing especially strange about human sacrifice, but Abraham believed that our, his God, his Lord, was different. And Mount Moriah shows up three, three times total in Scripture. The first is in this passage. The second one is in 2 Samuel 24, where David says the famous line, No, I will buy it from you for a price, for I will not off, offer burnt offerings to Lord my God that cost me nothing. Interesting how even David, in the same place as Abraham and Isaac, realized that an offering to God should cost you something. 
The third is David's son Solomon. This is exactly where he builds the temple of God. It was a great cost of resources and time. And it, you should see how much, read about it in 2 Chronicles 3. There's gold all up in that place. Like it was expensive. It was a great cost. So moving on. Verse 3 says this, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place at which God had told him. Uh, verse 4, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. On the third day. There's a lot of, there's a lot of symbolism here that we're going to see and we'll get to. When Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, these are the servants that came with him. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now this last phrase, and come again to you, at this point, Abraham doesn't know the outcome. But he knows the one over the outcome. And that's important to know. And listen to his language. He says, and to come to you again, this statement is just dripping and saturated with faith. And it should be noted that this is the first time that worship is used in the Bible in reference to God. The Hebrew word simply means to bow down. So Abraham and Isaac, they did not go to the mount to have a joyful praise and dance. They went there to bow down before the Lord. Bowing is a sign of submission. It's a heart posture that says, not my will, but yours. In verse 6, it says this, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they both went, uh, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, a perfectly great question, by the way, Father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Let's just talk about the massive parallel to Christ. In this portion of text, which is, which is foreshadowing what Jesus would do for us later. But I will dig into that a little bit in just a moment. But I want to just slow down for a moment. It's easy to detach ourselves or yourself from the intensity of the story. As we read through all of these pieces, this is sometimes the issue of reading stories like this. We know the outcome. We know what's coming up. We know that God's going to provide. We know the end of the story. Abraham has no idea. Zero. He has no idea what the outcome is going to be. But what he does know is, as he says, God will provide. Put yourself in this situation. You're with your son, the one whom God promised that all nations will be blessed and come from. You're walking up this hill, and the only instruction you have from God so far is to offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. What's going through your mind? What would you be thinking about? What doubts, fears, confusion, anger, hurt? What would you be feeling? The level of obedience and faith that Abraham is exhibiting is incredible. Verse 9 says this. 
When they came to the place at which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. Let's pause for a second. I like stopped right in the middle of the scene. We read this line after line. But this had to have taken a while, right? More time for thoughts. More time for interactions. You know, they get up to the top, and Abraham's just like, yep, this is the place. We're just going to lay some wood out. We're going to do all this different stuff. Hey, Isaac, come here for a second. He starts to bound him up. I'm sure I would be thinking, Abraham did say, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, but still at this point, there is no lamb. Abraham starts to bind his, his hands, to bind his, his feet, all this different stuff. I would be thinking, you know what, God? Now is a good time for a lamb, right? Now is a good time for you to promise to come through on the, and provide for the promise that I know you would. Here's what I've noticed about God so far in my personal life and what I notice in the narrative of Scripture. God intervenes at just the right time, always. But if I'm honest, sometimes in my calculations, it feels really late, right? Like he's sitting here, he has the knife, he's already put his son on the wood. Like he's, it's like, whoop, here we go. And then I'm like, this is too late. And not to mention the walk down from the mountain, that conversation. But verse 11 says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your one and only son from me. The Lord's response to Abraham is wild. This test revealed Abraham's faith. With this moment where God stopped the human sacrifice, he showed emphatically to Abraham that he was not like the pagan gods, worshipped by the Canaanites and the other gods. God does not demand human sacrifice. What is amazing here is you have to understand the culture and the time that Abraham was in. Like He may be thinking, like, I thought Yahweh was different. I thought this, but it shows that he stopped and he said, nope, I am not like the gods of the Canaanites. Verse 13 says this, And Abraham lifted up and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place Yahweh Yira, which means the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And this is really important to catch real quick. Abraham did not name the place in reference to his experience. He did not, he did not name it Mount Trial or Mount Agony or Mount Awkwardness or Mount Obedience. What he did instead, he named it in reference to what God did. He named it Mount Provision. God will provide. 
Verse 15 says this, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offsprings as the stars of heaven and the sands of the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They rose and together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Now, I want to propose these few takeaways from this text. First one is this. Obedience during test reveals your current level of faith. Obedience during test reveal your current level of faith. For Abraham, this is interesting. This test was not to produce faith, but rather reveal the current state of it. I think sometimes it's easy to look at test as this is a chance that the only purpose of test is to produce more faith, which that's a part, but in this instance, it was revealing what faith Abraham already had. See, Abraham's obedience is rooted in his trust in God because Remember, let's reflect back on the narrative and the story so far. Abraham said to Isaac when he asked about the sacrifice, God will provide the sacrifice. Even when Abraham didn't see how God was going to provide, that didn't cause him to, in wavering to know that God will provide. Just because he didn't see yet doesn't mean it won't happen yet. And what did God do? And God provided the ram at just the right moment. See, tests in life are revealing, whether we like it or not. They can be seen as opportunities or inconveniences. What you face in your everyday life can be seen as an opportunity to grow your faith, to reveal your faith, or an inconvenience. Because we know in James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you run into trials of various kinds. He talks about how this testing produces steadfastness, which is endurance. And that steadfastness, when it comes to full effect, it means it'll help you be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. That faith, complete faith in God is fulfilling. Tests are opportunities when we see them two different ways. The first is like Abraham, a chance to see God provide or secondly, as James says, a chance to grow in endurance. And I just want to clarify. I'm not saying that if you struggle, that means you don't have faith. I feel like a lot of the time growing in faith is marked by the struggle. There is grace for you. There is grace for me as we learn to walk the path of sanctification and trust in God. Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh, like begging, begging, like take this from my side. And what is Jesus' response? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. It's not, okay, you know, you know, the thorn's been there long enough or we'll move it. It's no, that your, that your faith being produced and your well-being is not the absence of a thorn, but it's the presence and grace of God. So in the midst of your test, it's not the absence Absence of testing that will produce faith is in the middle of that testing. Where is your focus on in the first place? 
His grace is sufficient for whatever test you may find yourself in this morning. Or in Romans 7, Paul also talks about the struggle of wanting to do what is right, but the sin that is still within him is opposite to the Spirit of God and fights within him. See, struggle does not mean you don't have faith. Struggle just means we're on this side of eternity. The life of Abraham is full of failures, but we can let We can either do one of two things. We can fail forward in the sense of confession, repentance, and growth, or we can fail and allow that failure to dominate and define us. Do you have failures in your life that you define yourself by? Do you have failures in your life that you've seen God grow you through? Do you have failures in your life that that you have responded well to in confession, repentance, and growth. It's amazing on the other side of that, how God works. Friend, the biggest lie that the enemy will try to get you to believe is now that you are a Christian, you cannot fail. Because now you should know better. You say you claim this faith. You say you love Jesus. You say that you are a Christian, but how come you do things opposite to what you, opposite to what you say you believe? And I need to be honest for a moment. When you live in that mindset and that lie, you will give grace to everyone else except yourself, which is to say this, Jesus, your grace is strong, but not strong enough for me. I just want you to know for a moment that you and your sin are not that strong. You and your brokenness are not that strong to disable the grace of God. But it's so easy to feed into that lie that because of what I have done, therefore this is what I deserve, therefore this is who I am. And we make the failures the defining feature of our life instead of the grace of God. And when we make the failures the defining feature of our life, we no longer are defined by the grace of God, but our determination of what we think we deserve. We find ourselves in this spot of understanding, like, I have put myself above the grace of God, that his grace is good, his grace was good when he first saved me, but now that I should know better, it has ran out. Now, some of us maybe would never vocalize that, but maybe some of us have certainly thought that. I want you to know, you're in good company. Every single one of us in here has had failures upon failures upon failures. So you are not isolated. You are not alone. We are in good company of a bunch of people that need the grace of God just as much as you. So in the midst of the depth of your faith being revealed, I just want to encourage you, have grace for yourself and allow that to bring you to Jesus. Second piece is this. Put your faith in the promiser rather than the promise. Put your faith in the promiser rather than the promise. Abraham had to learn the difference between trusting the promise of God and trusting the promiser. We can put God's promise before God himself and feel like it is our responsibility to bring that promise to pass. We see this happen with 
with uh, uh, Sarah and Hagar from Abraham's life. Trust the promiser no matter what, and the promise will be taken care of. God knows what he said. God knows what he promised. Abraham could have refused all of this because of the promise God has made. God, you promised that through my son Isaac will become many nations, and now the instruction to sacrifice him? He could have gone so many different ways with this interaction with God. But at this moment, Abraham had a chance, a choice to make. Obey God and trust him to be faithful to his promise or disobey God because you think you know how to fulfill the promise better than him. And when we look at the promises of scripture, when we look at what this this full and abundant life and relationship with Jesus and what that produces in our life, we can do one of two things. We can either say, God, I don't see it yet, but I trust you over what I see. Or we can come to the other side of God, I don't see or feel or see, it's not working out how I thought, so I'm gonna give you a little bit of help to try to produce what I think you're trying to do in my life. Oh, that's cute. But is that not reality sometimes? Is that not true sometimes in our lives, in our hearts that we see, God, I know this and I, and I don't see it yet. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to just put a little bit of help behind it. God delivers on his promise at just the right time. God provided a ram at just the right time. In Genesis 21, Sarah became pregnant. It says, at just the right time when God wanted to happen. 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some count slowness. Could it be that God is not on my timeline? He is not on your timeline. He is not on our city's timeline. He's not on True Hope's timeline. He's on his, and we're saying, God, we want to get on your timeline at your time, and what I'm gonna do and my responsibility as a Christ follower is to wait well and to wait faithfully. Brandon, it's 2023. I have on-demand everything. I have high-speed internet. I can go through anywhere and food I can have in like two minutes. We don't wait well. It's so easy and so foreign. We all like the idea of waiting well and waiting faithfully. But what can happen is we don't, we, we've been conditioned, whether by yourself or by the culture or by the world, that it's now, now, now. If it's more than five minutes, tell me what you do if your Instagram does not load in under 10 seconds. You close the app, you reopen it. If that didn't work, I force restart. I'm going to do whatever it takes because it did not load in 10 seconds. We have these things in our life. Oh, the internet is so slow. Oh my gosh, jump off the network, jump back on. Like We are so conditioned to have things so fast and so ready, but could it be that God does a lot of character building in the waiting? Let's take Joseph. We're going to get there. His, the dream that God gave him, he was 17. It didn't come to pass till 30. There's so many examples in scripture from the time it was spoken to the time it came to pass was years and decades. Our American mindset does not like that. What are some of the promises in God's word that you hold close?
And I'd say, hold them close, but hold the promiser closer. Third, th- third piece is this. What we withhold reveals what we don't trust God with. What we withhold reveals where we don't trust God. But I will say, what you don't withhold from God shows what you do trust him with. I just want to ask you a question. I want you to think about it. What in your life do you withhold from God? Is it sin and brokenness? Is it shame? Is it your marriage? Is it your family? Is it your kids? Is it your future? I get to decide. Like, God, you can kind of give me some pointers along the way, but mostly um, I'll just go this route and you, you know, you just interject what you need and we'll see if it works out. Are you still holding on to bitterness? Has something happened years ago that you're still paying the price for emotionally and at a soul level? Are you holding on to anger? If this thing didn't happen this way, then I want to be in this spot, and so I just feel angry, and I'm going to hold on to that anger for what? Do you have resentment? Man, you don't, you don't know my family, though. You're right, I don't, and you don't know my family. You don't know my life either. I see this section that says, share yours, and I don't want to. <laughs> Ironically enough, it's vulnerability. Vulnerability with other godly people. I'll tell you why once I can see my notes. We want relationships of depth, right? We have a ton of acquaintances. What we need are Godly relationships of depth. Why is vulnerability hard for me? I'm going to share with you. Because I'm afraid of this. If I let someone close in, they will see my failures and I will let them down. And I'll hurt them. So what do I do? So I keep people close but not too close to hurt them. I'll, tell, I'll be transparent with people. This is where I've been, but I won't be vulnerable. This is where I am. It's easy to tell people where I was. It's hard to tell people where I am. But let's dive down this rabbit hole even further, no matter how much I don't want to. I don't want to let someone down because then I feel like I become a burden to them. But if I'm burdened to them, I don't bring any worth to the relationship. If I don't bring any worth to a relationship, I don't have any worth. Then I can wonder, why am I surrounded by so many wonderful people yet still feel so alone and unknown? Have you, have you ever felt this? You know, I'm not going to make you raise your hand. Don't worry. <laughs> have, you, 
Have you been in a spot where you felt stuff like this before? I'll tell you exactly why I withhold my worth, being found in Christ and Christ alone. The reason is I've withheld and tied up my worth into myself and other people's perspective and view of me. But the reality is, when I find my worth is Christ and Christ alone, and I don't rest in that, I've put the burden of my worth on myself and on others, a weight that nobody can carry. And if we want to dig a little bit deeper, it's an issue of control. I want to control the narrative of how people see me and view me. What are you withholding from God? Will you trust him? For me, the art and, and the discipline of being vulnerable with people to the place of like, this is where I am at and this is all that I've, like just being empty before somebody in a godly relationship, I have zero control of that situation now. Now in that moment is a decision saying, God, I am trusting that my worth is not in their perspective of me, but my worth is found in what you have done and accomplished and done in my life, and my worth and value is now hidden in Christ, not in them. Not in myself. Oftentimes, when we use the term I'm, term, I'm struggling with blank. So in my situation, I'm struggling with vulnerability, right? That just sounds super Christianese and spiritual, right? But if what I am struggling with is something I've yet to fully surrender God to God and trust him with, it's not a problem of struggle. As Elizabeth Elliot, a missionary and author, she says it this way, a whole lot of what we call struggling is simply delayed obedience, you know, I'm just really struggling in my family. I'm really struggling with fill in the blank. What is it? My question to you is, have you actually trusted and surrendered that to God? Or are you trying to be the one that brings resolution to where you're struggling? Because what we withhold reveals what we don't trust God with yet. But what's wild is on the other side of obedience is miracles. On the other side of obedience for Abraham, do you remember what he named the mountain? Yahweh, you're a God provides. He didn't make his obedience about him. He made it about God. Don't make your struggles about you because when you do, you become the one who needs to provide the way out. Look to the Lord. After all, he is the provider and I am not. You are not. Maybe for some of us in here this morning, you have been trying to manage your struggle yourself. You've been trying to struggle your way out of struggle. You are no match for that. The only way that God can provide and will provide is when you fully surrender that to him, saying, God, I cannot do this. I am no match for this, but you are the one who provides and the one that can bring restoration and healing to this area. So I, would, I beg you in the most loving way, like stop trying to do it yourself because it's a weight you cannot bear, and my guess is you already know that and feel that. The fourth piece is this. 
Your obedience or disobedience impacts more than just you. Verse 18, we read it. It said, your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. All the nations being blessed is this conversation about bringing forth the Messiah, Jesus, from the Abraham's lineage. And also, as it was repeated earlier in Genesis 2-3, the Messiah would fulfill this promise of blessing to all nations of the earth. What you do and what you don't do have a ripple effect. Think about this from the previous point we just got done talking about. What you trust God with or what you withhold from God has a ripple effect. But I want to take a moment and I want to talk about the ultimate obedience that has an impact for everybody. So if we go back in the story, Isaac is bound on on wood. Abraham's sitting there. And he's about to go into the act of sacrificing his son. God provided the ram at just the right time. This is what we need to continue to read. However, God still required a sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? He didn't just stop and say, okay, just kidding, do over. Okay, we're good. I know it. Pack up. We're going home. God still required a sacrifice. God didn't call off the sacrifice. Instead, he required that there be a substitute provided by God himself. When God asked Abraham for the ultimate demonstration of love and commitment, he asked for Abraham's son. When God the Father showed us the ultimate demonstration of his love and commitment, he gave us his son. Come on, this story is saturated in the gospel. When we had no way out, when we are deep in our struggles, deep in our doubt, deep in our fear, when we are trying to work our way out into a better life, trying to get in the good graces of God, we are trying the impossible task of trying to provide a sacrifice that we cannot satisfy. We're trying to pay a debt that is above what we can contribute. So what did God do when he wanted to show his ultimate demonstration of love for you and for me? He sent his son. And he sent his son so that you and I could live and walk in the fullness of who God has called you to be. And that's not to have the most wonderful, perfect life, void of test. Our chief and goal of our life is to glorify God. We get ourselves in a mess when we make our life about us and trying to build up our life. Could it be that that reasoning and that thought pattern has created the mess that we're in in the first place? So Jesus, he came 
He was unfairly treated. He was beaten and bruised and he was hung on that cross and he died and he rose again on the third day to give you, to give me a life, the full life, the good life, one that is meant to honor him, to glorify him and to be made right with the Father. So I have these three questions I want us to think about as we respond this morning. Where is God calling you into a deeper level of faith? What promise are you holding on to above the promiser? And lastly, what is something you're withholding from God? my challenge would be that today, whatever you're withholding, you make a conscious decision to stop withholding it. Allow God to show you that he is the provider he promises to be. And to remember that his promises are fulfilled at just the right time. Because I want to remind you, the depth of your faith is directly connected to your level of obedience. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we need you. God, I pray that you continue to convict our hearts, to show us what we're withholding. God, not from a place of shame or anger, God, but from a place of that freedom is waiting on the other side of that obedience, Jesus. God, I pray for people in here that are trying to manage their struggles on their own. God, I pray that you just show them that submission to you and open hands to you and allowing you to be the provider, God, is the way that we find the comfort, the peace, and the hope that we're looking for, God. It's in you, it's by you, and it's because of you, Jesus. God, I thank you for your faithfulness. We say this in your name. Thank you.